you know, the body is one whole being. It, we are not parts put together. So if this baby is all crunched up, their their knees are in flexion and their hips are in flexion, everything's just really closed up, then the system, the, the whole body system isn't going to work great. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hey, Maria. Hey, Shelly. Do you know what cranial sequel therapy is? I do in theory, but I've never actually observed a session. Well, unless you count, you know, the 30 seconds of Instagram video that I've seen of a girl adjustment. But in theory, I know what it is. It's very, in my mind, I have defined it as, you know, I always kind of compare things to chiropractic when it comes to infant body work. And I compare it to an infant chiropractor is, is, the one that is making the adjustment, whereas cranial sacral therapy is relaxing your body in order for you to adjust to what you need it to be. Is that, is that what you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I know, I understand what you're saying. Like, uh, like chiropractic has more to do with bones and spine and CST has more to do with soft tissue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and the like when I watch like videos or something like that, the idea is that you know they are able to relax the soft tissue in order for you to be able to unwind yourself or to align yourself. Like you watch these videos of babies getting cranial sacral therapy, and they do like all these cute stretches and like moves, Mm. (laughs) maneuvers. It always makes me feel like I need to take yoga class, just making them, <laughs> just watching them do those stretches. It's like, right? oh, wow. I haven't stretched in years. Right. Well, today's guest is Megan Beams from My Baby Cranial Sacral. She is a CST in Toronto. And she's Great. going to talk to us about how CST with your baby can help with feeding issues. Very cool. First, This is, I don't consider this new news, but it was a new study that backed up what we already know Mm -hmm. that delayed cord clamping or waiting for two minutes or longer to clamp the umbilical cord of a premature baby will likely reduce the risk of death soon after birth. Did they qualify premature? I believe they did. The study did involve 10,000 babies. I wonder what age range those babies are in, though. I don't think they would be able to. The only reason I say that is because I don't think they would be able to delay any sort of care on a severely premature infant. I guess it depends on what's going on. Like Like how serious the, how well the baby is doing. Right. Like, yeah, but I guess, you know, kind of to my point is like those severely severely premature babies you know, under 30 weeks are pretty fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't say in the article. Interesting. It, the um, gestational age of the babies. Interesting. 
All right, we'll have to look that one up. Oh, it says right here, any subgroup of premature babies where infants were born before 32 weeks of pregnancy. Interesting. 44.9% of the babies with immediate cord clamping experienced hypothermia after birth compared to 51.2% of those with deferred clamping. Interesting. So they tested on severely premature babies. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what they found from that was that you have to make sure that the babies are staying warm when they're delaying the cord clamping. Right, right. And they recommend drying and wrapping the baby with the cord intact and then placing the dry baby directly on the mother's bare chest under a blanket. Mm. Neat. Yeah, it's amazing like what our bodies were meant to do. And then it's like even more amazing, not in a good way of how much we mess it up. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's funny is every time that kind of stuff comes up, really what it points to is less interference is always more beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now let's do our question of the week. This week's question is How can I tell if my eight week old is cluster feeding? Or my supply is low and he just isn't satisfied? That is an excellent question. And there's a few different ways you could tell that. The, what I want to start with first. I would say first, my first thought is, is it lasting for more than like a couple of days? If it's lasting for more than a day or two, that's probably not cluster feeding. However, most babies eat more frequently in the evening, especially in that newborn time frame. So if they're eating more frequently in the evening, but they are diapering appropriately. So at eight weeks old, they should still be having at least six wets and three poops a day. Then that might be sort of their normal evening. Is it the witching hour where, you know, everybody, what I always tell moms is it's natural. It's normal and natural for our bodies to start to produce less towards the end of our day. That's to do with our prolactin cycle. So, you know, most babies tend to feed more frequently in the evenings and the afternoons when we're producing a little bit less anyway. But so if you're talking about cluster feeding being in like frequent feeding in a full 24 hour period, and that's going on for more than a couple of days, and maybe you start to notice that, that your baby's diapers are not what they used to be. So let's say they used to be pooping six or peeing six times a day and pooping three times a day, but now their diapers are starting to be fewer or lighter. Maybe the poop isn't as substantial as it used to be. Maybe the peas aren't as heavy as they used to be. That might be a sign of a declining supply. Yeah, I agree. And I also tell parents, look at what your baby is doing at the breast. If you used to hear like a ton of gulping and swallowing and now you're not, that could be another yellow flag. Yeah. Or like, are they getting sleepy at the breast really quickly? Like, are they... Are they wearing themselves out? They're eating a lot more frequently, and but they're getting kind of tired at the breast and you have all of these other signs going on. Mm-hmm. But if you're ever in any doubt, then I would recommend seeking out an IBCLC because they can help you determine if it's cluster feeding or a supply issue. Yeah. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, you can DM it to me at Shelly Taft IBCLC on Instagram. And next up, we'll be speaking with Megan. This week, we are speaking with Megan Beams all about 
how cranial sacral therapy can help babies with feeding issues. Megan Beams is the creative mind behind My Baby Cranial Sacral, a clinic in Toronto with a team of practitioners who treat babies and parents with cranial sacral therapy or a CST. As a registered massage therapist and cranial sacral therapist, Megan has successfully treated over 700 families since 2018. In 2020, Megan founded the Beams CST Training Center to train like-minded professionals in infant CST and now has over 100 students from all over the world. Her mission is to teach others how they too can make an incredible impact on the world around them by helping the youngest generation to feel good in their body and develop optimally. Megan is the host and founder of the My Baby Cranial Sacral podcast with new episodes released bi-weekly. This podcast discusses all things health and wellness for babies and parents, from topics such as birth on the infant body to the missing piece for a tongue-tie revision, Megan delves deep to explore how body work can have a meaningful impact on families. Thanks for joining us today, Megan. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm Megan Beams. I am living up here in Toronto, Canada. I am a registered massage therapist, a craniosacral therapist, and I have my own practice in Toronto where I treat babies specifically with craniosacral therapy. And I have a team of practitioners who work for me as well. And I'm also the instructor and owner of Beam CST Training Center, where I teach health professionals how to do infant craniosacral therapy. I'm also a mom. I'm a mom of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And it's a really cool age now, but I absolutely remember being a parent with an infant the very first time. And it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. When you're in those yeah. trenches. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It was difficult. So you're like the expert of experts if you're teaching other providers. I, <laughs> do would, what you do. I could be considered the expert of experts. Yes. I have quite a few. Now I've got over a hundred graduates of my program. So oh, wow. it's, yeah. So there's lots of us out there doing this great work. And what kind of providers take your program? So the majority of the people who are who are really interested in infant craniosacral are healthcare providers who are either working in the postpartum realm or already working with babies. So that can be lactation consultants, physiotherapists, massage, you know, infant and baby massage therapists. We've got lots of doulas and midwives who really love this work. And, you know, all of these people, the, the people who really love this work are just in love with babies as well. So mm -hmm. that's the majority of them. And it's a lot of times it's moms and, and parents who they themselves had a really tricky start to the newborn. <laughs> you know, their newborn came into their life and it was really, really difficult. They saw how difficult it was. And then you know, they, they thought, I really don't want other people to have to suffer like I did. So I want to learn how to do this to help other parents have an easier time with their babies. I love that because we are in dire need of providers who actually know how to work with infants and do the good work that you are doing in training other providers to do. So I love that. 
Well, what is cranial sacral therapy to begin with? And how does it differ from other modalities of body work like chiropractic, massage? I know, I don't know what it's like in Toronto, but in my area, a lot of people are familiar with chiropractic care for infants. And a lot of the families I work with take their babies to the chiropractic. How does that differ than cranial sacral? Because we don't have a lot of cranial sacral therapists in my area that work with infants. There's maybe like one or two in the entire state. So the parents in my area just aren't hearing about it as much. Yeah. And I think because parents don't hear about it as much, they think that it's not as good, Mm -hmm. perhaps, um, which is not. That's absolutely not the case. So craniosacral therapy is really not too far off from massage or, you know, fascial work. It's incredibly gentle. It's very slow. It's very soft and calming. And it works with relieving and releasing tension that can be trapped in a baby's body that kind of, you know, makes them feel stuck or makes them feel kind of you know, some pain. So they only turn their body to the side that they don't feel pain in. Or we can help them to increase range of motion. So maybe they only look one way. So we we soften the tissue so that it doesn't feel like a stretch to turn to the opposite side. So it's it's very similar to other manual therapies. It's just that it's softer. And because we come from, you know, pain equals results right with that deep pressure people are like oh you you can't get anywhere with gentle massage you got to put an elbow in there right so we we really are trained to believe that you only get results from deep pressure so why would you use gentle touch when it comes to a baby they don't need deep pressure mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they they need that gentle touch so we use very very subtle techniques to soften the tissue, to open up what's kind of stuck, just so that the body works better. And the difference between that and chiropractic is that chiropractors are, their focus is mainly on the joints. So subluxations of joints or misalignments or you know, the nervous system not firing well because of the joints out of place. And I'm I'm painting a major brush, you know, very broad strokes about Cairo because I know that lots of different Kairos have lots of different training. But it differs in that we are not focusing on joint subluxations. We're not focusing on, you know, perfect alignment of the body. We're fo- focusing on optimizing the function. Mm-hmm. So I would say that it's different from Cairo, but it's also complementary to Cairo mm-hmm. because we don't do what Cairo's do and Cairo's don't always do what we do, but they work really, really well in combination with each other. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Cairo's and CSD has the same goal, but it just approaches it differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And some parents are really scared about chiropractic for their, for the baby, even though, you know, it's, it's very gentle and it's, you know, their techniques are different (laughs) for babies when, you know, different than adults to babies. And so, you know, with, with craniosacral, they might think that it's similar, that it's kind of a scary thing to help 
relieve tension in the baby's body. But for both of them, chiro and cranio, they're both so gentle. Their approach is so gentle that there aren't a lot of, you know, side poor side effects or bad side effects to having this done. Right. And I, the, my two favorite body workers that I refer to, cause I get the best results when I send families their way, they are hieros, but they have CSD training. And I love that they combine the two. And I think that's why I see more success when I send families to those specific providers. And it's funny because the families will always come back and be like, well, all they, what it looks like is they're just touching your baby with your fingertips. And you're kind of like, what did I just pay for? <laughs> And and that was when when I took my own baby to body worker. That is my husband and I used to joke all the time where he would like tap my thigh and be like, there, I just suggested you. But so it was fun to joke about, but we kept going because we saw the results and we saw how much it helped our baby and how, and as a provider, I see how much it helps the, the families that I work with. Yeah. And because it, the touch and the movements are so subtle, it's like a millimeter, you know, and that's imperceivable for some people. You know, you can't see me moving a millimeter to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, you know? So it really looks like we're not doing anything, mm -hmm. right? And you're, th and you're thinking, well, this person's charging a lot of money mm -hmm. and they're barely doing anything. You know, is this a whole bunch of hogwash? Is this a bunch of woo-woo? But just like you said, you see the results after. Because it's, that's all it takes is super gentle touch mm -hmm. and super minimal movements. What I love to tell parents at the very beginning of the very first session <laughs> is that it's going to look like I'm doing a whole lot of nothing. But I <laughs> promise you, anytime I am touching your baby, I am working. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as my hands are feeling that body, I am trying to figure out, okay, well, when I'm holding under their armpits, right? Like if I've got my arms and my hands under their armpits, I can see, well, does their left shoulder move as well as the right shoulder? Do they tilt their head forward? What happens when I try to bring them backwards, right? So I'm not just, you know, giving them a massage. I'm also assessing their body. And that's a big part of the work as well is like figuring out, well, why don't they like to raise their hands above their head? Oh, is it because you know, their rotator cuff is tight. Babies can have a tight shoulder, you know? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I put my hands under their, their shoulder blades, sorry, around their shoulder blades, I can really softly, gently, you know, manipulate that tissue under my fingertips. So it kind of melts and just turns to butter. And, you know, the baby will start to be like, they, they get this like ooey gooey feeling and then boom, their arm goes above their head. Mm -hmm. Some things that I hear families say all the time after they see, have after they have a CST work done on their babies is, oh, he slept like the best he's yeah. ever slept in his life so far. Or we drove all the way home and he didn't scream in his car seat the way he usually does. Like sometimes the, or a lot of times the effects can be, immediate that you notice. Oh, for sure. Well, if a baby is screaming in the car seat, it could be that like the car seat makes their back hurt mm -hmm. because they got, they've got tightness in their spine mm -hmm. and you release the tightness in their spine and then it doesn't hurt them to be in the car seat. They don't yeah. scream, right? Like it, it's, 
it's it is that simple mm-hmm. and that's why however people don't believe the babies can feel pain in their body in a way that's caused by muscle tension because they're so young and they're so new what how possibly could they have you know gotten muscle tension mm-hmm. we think that muscle tension comes from years of you know life living life but it it starts in utero you and you talk about that on your instagram that feeding problems start before the baby is born absolutely so can you talk a little bit more about that yeah for sure so in pregnancy babies if it's one baby in there right and every baby is different but if there's one baby in there they've got some space to grow and develop but they're in a womb that is housed and held within a pelvis and that pelvis maybe you've got you know maybe you've got one leg longer than the other that means you've got a rotated pelvis if this person has a rotated pelvis that baby's going to have a position that's off to one side and a lot of times people who are pregnant they'll feel like oh they've got a bit back ache mostly in one side that usually means that there's a lot of weight being carried, the weight of the baby being carried on one side, putting strain on the opposite. And that tells us that this baby is also kind of on a curve in utero. So their spine could be curved and creating torticollis in utero due to this twisted pelvis. And then when they come out, a lot of times they only want to feed on one side. Or they feel comfortable in the football hold on one side and then cross cradle on the other side because they don't like bending to the opposite side mm-hmm. because their back started hurting possibly in utero. And I know that this can hurt people's hearts knowing that, you know, it might hurt babies to turn to the opposite side, but know that we can just release the tissue and within seconds they feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, how the baby is developing in utero is makes a big difference. So that's, that's a one baby when it comes to twins or multiples, they've got even less space to grow. And so we might get, you know, babies who've got their head tucked to one side that can happen with one baby as well. And when your, their head is tucked to one side, it can cause shortening of the muscles on the side that's tucked, but it can also throw their jaw out of alignment while they're developing in utero. So then their jaw comes out and their jaw is skewed. That means that their tongue is only going to work so well on one side. And then when they go to feed, well, then they're going to clamp down on one side and dribble on the other. Mm -hmm. Right. So these things start really early on. What about breach and transverse babies? Do you feel like they come out with a lot of structural issues as well? Absolutely. Uh, breach birth, sorry, not even breach birth, breach babies. I have found that no matter what at gestational age they were breach, even if they were breached from, let's say, 24 weeks to 32 weeks, and then they flipped and then they were born vaginally, I almost always find that in their spine, like low spine-ish, that there's a vertebrae that's out. And these babies are gassy. They're grunty. They don't poop every day. They scream a lot. And they've got distended belly buttons. 
And so by releasing this tension that's in the abdomen and along the spinal column, we can help that, you know, over time, that vertebrae will go back into a better alignment pretty much on its own. So that's the body of a breech baby. But then a breech baby with a breech head, they've got more elongated. They've kind of got like a really long and flat, long from front to back and kind of flat on the top. And this can also throw off their jaw alignment. It will actually retract that jaw because everything's being pulled back. And so they're going to have a weak latch. They are going to swallow a lot of air. There's probably going to be a lot of reflux. They might even be really chompy. They might spit up a lot. And so breech babies, actually, I find I will have to see them for more consecutive appointments than a head down baby. Do you think birth method or birth practices also play a part? Like maybe the baby wasn't in an odd position, but they were a vacuum delivery or a C-section delivery. Do you think that makes a difference as well? Absolutely. Now, for a baby who needed to be vacuumed, even though they were in a good position, usually means that it was a very small pelvis or the baby's head was very large. <laughs> but if a vacuum needs to be used, it, it usually means that this person is on their back to push in the, during the pushing phase and that the baby's head is in a poor position. So this baby, you know, who needed to be vacuumed was already in a poor position. They might have developed for quite a few weeks in that poor position. And then they, you know, because they're in a poor position, it usually makes the circumference of their head wider. And because the circumference of their head is wider, they can't get through the pelvis as well. That's why you need the help to bring the baby out. And then once you you help bring the baby out using force, <laughs> the baby can get a headache from that. They can get bruising. But then it also has an effect on their fascia. So if you don't know what fascia is, it is a tissue that wraps around every almost every aspect of our body. And it's a protective tissue. So it contracts like muscle, but it doesn't relax or release like muscle. So once it has contracted, it stays contracted until it's properly released. So when a baby comes out and they need the help, well, they're going to try to protect their neck by contracting that fascia and then they get pulled out. And then so then, you know, with that traction, they want to protect even further. And so a lot of times you'll see these babies who you you can't get under their neck, as in like their double chin to clean it because their shoulders are stuck to their ears. Mm -hmm. And so that's a sign that the fascia is really, really tight in that area. And I find that that happens a lot with really long pushing stages. So even when baby was not you know, didn't need a vacuum or didn't need forceps. If there was pushing for longer than 45 minutes, that baby's neck is probably pretty tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes and that's yeah, I see that in really fast pushing. 
Absolutely. Too, when they tell, when the parents will say, oh, like he came out in one push or I pushed for five minutes and you see the same thing. I literally just had a baby walk out of my office before we jumped on here where we were commenting. I was telling the parents like, do you see how you cannot see your baby's neck? Like, and it was an over a three hour pushing stage for them. Do you see how you, and at one point we had worked on relaxing the baby and the baby's elongated the neck and we were mm-hmm. like, yay, we see your neck, yay. <laughs> so, right. But people, I think, I think people don't pick up on this and which, you know, I wouldn't expect parents to pick up on this, but it's a little disappointing that other healthcare providers don't pick up on this either. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And uh, it is my life's mission to change people's minds. (laughs) And to one of my least favorite words is awareness, but bring this to people's minds when they are looking at babies, that babies you know, they're not always a clean slate, Mm -hmm. but they can have issues too with, you know, muscle tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so you were saying about fast birth. Absolutely. The babies who come out fast, they don't have a lot of time to protect themselves. And so it's shocking to the system. And then there there are lots of things are really stretched really quickly and that hurts after. So so then they're guarded. They feel like they need to guard that because it was stretched too quickly. Mm-hmm. What are the most common feeding issues that you see families are coming to you for help with, uh, both breasts and bottle? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to breastfeeding, the issue is usually pain or low milk supply. You know, uh, what I really don't want parents to say is I've seen four lactation consultants and you're my last ditch attempt at breastfeeding. And I'm like, no, please, please let me be your first ditch attempt. (laughs) See me, then see the lactation provider who is going to help you with positioning and making sure you're on a good schedule. But if this baby's mouth isn't working, if this baby is in pain, then the lactation consultants, if they don't have this type of training, they're working with something that's not really optimal. So you're paying for money. You're paying money for for an appointment with someone who, you know, the the issue might actually just be the baby's body hurts. Mm -hmm. So I I want parents to think, okay, we've got feeding issues. I know that feeding issues, feeding is a very normal human thing. Why isn't it working? Is it me or is it the baby? I want the very first thing for them to think of is the baby. How can we optimize this baby's body so that we can get optimal feeding? Now, so when it comes to breastfeeding, if it's super painful, they've really got that clampy jaw, right? They're pinching, they're clamping. They probably have their ears, you know, tucked with their shoulders. They can't open their mouth wide. And then if it's, you know, a low milk supply or they're coughing, (laughs) they probably have some tension at the very base of where their head meets their neck at the very back. And we can work really gently in there. And then when it comes to bottle, a lot of times, a lot of times it's bottle aversion. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, again, last ditch attempt. I don't know what to do. This baby won't feed. So bottle aversion. Well, feeding is a human instinct. And so why isn't this baby feeding? 
right? Like, why is this baby avoiding the bottle? Usually it's because their mouth isn't working well, their tongue isn't working well, they don't feel comfortable. And so they almost feel like they're chugging, chugging, chugging. And that can be scary. Mm -hmm. So feeding from a bottle can actually just be really scary for the baby. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is reflux with both breast and bottle. So reflux babies, babies who are just, you know, really upset at the breast who are avoiding, who are, they can't find it, right? Like it's all over the place. They cannot seem to find it. They have, you know, they have the nipple, whichever nipple it is, breast or bottle, you know, right there and they can't find it, right? Something's off there with the baby's sensory and we can help them to have more feeling in their face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once the, the mouth starts working better, they can manage the flow of milk better. So they're not, you know, coughing on letdown or coughing on a fast flow because their, their tongue actually moves with that parasaltic wave to f- stop the flow and then allow flow and then stop the flow and allow flow. Right. So, yeah. So those are big ones and tongue tie, of course. Mm. Babies who are experiencing tongue ties. Yeah. And going back to what you had said about working with lactation, I am a huge fan of collaborative care. So when I refer my families to a body worker, I'm sending them my notes. They're sending me theirs. We're having a discussion of like, okay, when's a good time to follow up with you? When's a good time to follow up with me? And so I always encourage families like find yourself an IBCLC that believes in and participates in collaborative care, knows where to refer you and isn't just going in thinking they're going to just do a quick latch fix, knows what to look for, knows how to identify structural issues in your baby and then can refer out. Yes, absolutely. And that this IBCLC also has that person that they refer out to who is wonderful with collaborative care who they trust, right? And who they know that you are going to get good results from. Mm -hmm. Because sending them just to anyone, not everyone's going to get best results. Not every provider, you know, body work provider is going to give you the best results. Right. When is, is there an ideal time to, for parents to take their baby in for some cranial sacral therapy and how frequently should they bring their baby in? You know, I say the earlier, the better. The earlier this baby can receive, you know, a a full body release, the more issues and struggles that parents can avoid. So let's say in the first week, this baby is losing a lot of weight and they're like, they're, you know, they've lost almost 10% of, of their weight. That's a latching issue a lot of times. And that baby needs body work. So a baby can be seen, the youngest I've seen, she was 36 years old, years, 36 years old, 36 hours old. And I would have seen her at 18 hours old, but I had to go to sleep. (laughs) I had to go to sleep and I had to see her the next day. So yeah, the sooner the better, but I don't want parents to think that my baby's old now, so there's no point in taking them. Now is a good time to go. If you haven't gone, now is a good time to go. And then how often should they see them? I would say weekly for weekly for the first couple of weeks, so two or three weeks. 
And then after that, it could be bi-weekly. And then after that, it's maintenance. So like once a month, once every three months. But before that, you know, once a week is, is a lot for your baby. Now, depending on how severe the symptoms are, if the symptoms are really like this baby is really struggling, these, this family is really struggling, then I would say closer together, you know, every five to seven days, even four to five days for the first two or three. And then after that, you can spread them out a little bit more. Is there anything that a parent can do to support the effectiveness of cranial sacral therapy? Like are there exercises or practices that you give them to do at home? Yeah, I always give home care. I believe that craniosacral therapy is not everything. I do it. You know, I do craniosacral therapy, but I don't believe that that's the only answer, mm-hmm. you know, because movement is is medicine. So I get the parents to do tummy time. I get the parents to do little massages in the areas that I have felt that were really tight, that I know that probably tomorrow it's going to get tight again. Mm-hmm. And I don't want parents to be like, oh, she was great for three days. And then, you know, everything was back to being crap. You know, I don't want that for them. So I give them the home care and and I customize it for the baby and for the specific baby's issues. And it usually includes movement, exercise, stretch, a lot of skin to skin, and some even some vagus nerve exercises. So these exercises are like humming, patting the baby's bum or like really fine vibration on their bum to stimulate the vagus nerve, because that will help bring them into that rest and digest state, especially for the babies who don't poop a lot or who are just so colicky and, and gassy and grunty. The ones who like wake up at three in the morning and grunt for two hours. Mm-hmm. I really, I love to give them things that they can do to help pass that gas so that everyone can get sleep, including themselves. Massaging the earlobe too, right? Helps. With yeah, the yeah. Yeah. So when you massage the ear, some people are like, oh, it just feels really nice. But actually there is a nerve that exits the cranium right around the earlobe that controls the face, that controls the muscles of the face. And a baby who can't feel their mouth a lot of times has issues with this nerve. So that's why parents will see benefit or see results when they do, you know, just gentle ear pulls Mm -hmm. because they're opening up this cranial nerve that is sending and receiving messages to the areas of the face that are required for feeding. I think sometimes parents look at me like I have two heads when I'm like, oh, there's rub their earlobes and give them a foot massage. And they're like, how is that going to help them latch? But like you said, all that fascia tissue is all connected. So they have a tight, if they're, if they're flexing their toes and keeping their feet rigid and tight when they're trying to latch, that tells you a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the body is one whole being. We are not parts put together. So, if this baby is all crunched up, their their knees are in flexion and their hips are in flexion, everything's just really closed up, then the system, the, the whole body system isn't going to work great. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have to work the feet to improve the latch. We have to. Mm-hmm. Can't forget the body. 
Going back to one of the things that you had said, because it's something that I say to the families I work with all the time, like I, I will discourage spotting a lot, you know, keep them mm-hmm. off their backs, let them lay on your chest, mm-hmm. give them the opportunity to move. And you had said, you know, movement is, is medicine too. Can you talk a little bit more of that? Like how would tummy time and movement help a baby who has a lot of tightness in their body? Yeah, for sure. So a baby who, first of all, a baby who doesn't like tummy time, almost a hundred percent, they have some tightness in their spine. Mm-hmm. There's something in their spine that doesn't feel good when they do a back arch, right? And so, or it feels like a stretch in their front of their body. So the babies who like to do like little baby crunches, little sit-ups, baby, baby sit-ups all the time, they've got a lot of tension in their front body. And if a baby moves you know, the majority of their movement is the same type of movement, the baby who always do it does a crunch, then their back body isn't going to strengthen. And so if their back body is not strengthening, then there's going to be that asymmetry. And so this baby's going to continue to form and develop in this, you know, forward posture. And that could, that can go throughout life. So if we are getting them into a position that they don't really like, we're actually stretching it. We're giving that front body a nice stretch. And when they are bringing themselves into that back arch, they are bringing their own spinal vertebrae into proper alignment. Mm -hmm. So that's going to help their muscles to continue to bring their body into alignment and keep it out of misalignment, right? Because if they're always doing one position, they're going to be in misalignment. So the body is designed to keep itself in, you know, most, mostly aligned by using the muscles on both sides of the body. Not only that, but, you know, if you've got, let's say you've got a torticollis baby and they only turn to the right. Well, then their left side of their body is going to almost be forgotten. And then if we aren't activating that left side of the body, then that right side brain is going to stay kind of quiet. And what happens then is when these babies who don't move optimally or don't move in both directions, they then develop into babies who either don't crawl or they crawl with one leg or they kind of have like some weird crawling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that, that, you know, further goes into their toddlerhood that goes into their teen lives and it can actually cause some emotional problems learning difficulties and so it's really really important that these babies are activating both sides of the brain and when we swaddle and when we keep these babies in containers what they're going to do is continue to use the side that's strong they're going to continue to strengthen and grow neural pathways and neural connections on the side that's strong and the opposite side that's not getting a much function, that's not getting used, it's going to stay quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it keeps the body in alignment. So movement, sorry. So movement keeps the body in alignment. It creates neural pathways for great milestone development and reaching milestones. And it improves cognitive function going forward in life. And it strengthens the mouth and the neck muscles and all the cheeks 
in a way that even when they're three weeks old, they're going to help strengthen their own mouth so that feeding is better. So there's early benefits and lifelong benefits. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. And that's something that I tell my families to do all the time, like tummy time. Well, how's that going to help them breastfeed? It's all connected. It's what all connected. about those babies that you see? And I see a lot of these babies where they're like one week old and they're rolling over and the parents like my baby's so advanced and you hate to burst that bubble of joy and pride that the parents have. I don't remember if you saw on social media a few months ago, the pediatrician grandmother who is watching like her one week. Oh, you just rolled your eyes. So I'm guessing you saw whether she watches her grandson or whoever roll over at a week old and you know, everyone's so shocked and happy. And if you went to the comments of that video, you could see all the OTs and the PTs and the CSTs. And they're all saying, you know, we don't want to burst your bubble, but this is not normal. This is not a sign of an advanced baby. This is a sign that something structurally is going on. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. (laughs) Flash up 100%. Mm -hmm. I would love to know that baby's birth story. First of all, I would love to know that because in there would tell me exactly what's happening in that baby's body that keeps them feeling like they have to have their back arched, right? Mm -hmm. So a baby who is a week old, who comes up into a back arch or a little baby cobra, that's not someone who's advanced and who's smart. That's someone who feels like their back is so tight that the only way they can feel comfortable is by bringing their head closer to their butt backwards. And when they're up in tummy time, they need to, they push up and they extend, but then they push up and extend and turn their head. And because their head has gravitational pull, where whichever way they turn their head, their head's going to bring them to the one side. So it's not that this baby is necessarily advanced. Sure. Maybe they are great. Good for them. But it tells me that there is tension in their body and that they actually don't feel comfortable there. So they, so they push up into that tummy time, they turn their head, they roll over and they think, Oh, good. Now I feel better. So then the next time you put them in tummy time, they push up, they roll over and it looks intentional, but they're actually uncomfortable. And they're trying to get themselves out of this feeling of uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is great because it is creating neural pathways. So, but I want to know why is their back hurting? Right. Yeah. Are there any risks to cranial psychotherapy or any situations where it shouldn't be done? So yes, there are some risks for babies who have had a brain bleed. So the babies who have been in in the NICU, we don't want to do anything that's going to increase the circulation to the cranium. Because, you know, even if it's been watched and monitored, we just want to make sure that we are staying away from brain bleeds or babies who have experienced a brain bleed and babies who have experienced a stroke as well. So any increase of cranial pressure, so which includes just blood flow, we want to avoid that. And then anything else is everything is wonderful. Like those are those are the contraindications our brain injury. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other one is if there's a hematoma. So the ones who have the, the big, they've got the big bruise on the cranium that's kind of bubbled out. If that is in the middle of their head 
right? If the if that bubble of of dead blood cells is kind of in the middle at the top of their head, then we want to avoid that. But if it's off to one side and it's just on one cranial bone, then we're okay to work with that. We just avoid touching that area as much as possible because it can be painful for them. Right. And yeah. you see parents all the time in the hospital where they, they, the baby has the hematoma and they're like, oh, the pediatrician said it doesn't hurt them or anything. And instinctively, that never made sense to me because I feel like if you had a huge bruise and like, Feels awful. that would be painful. <laughs> but I These feel babies like, cry a lot. Right. And I, I'm in the US and it might be different than it is for you, but I feel like providers are very dismissive of what babies are capable of doing and what they are capable of feeling. Yes. Now, babies also have the ability to leave their body, right? They are very new to this world and they can just check out, right? If they're in a lot of pain, they'll just fall asleep and they will leave their body, right? They will check out of their body. They'll be like, listen, this hotel sucks. I'm out of here, mm-hmm. right? Because they're in so much pain. And so they're going to be super sleepy, super drowsy, hard to rouse a lot of times because they're in pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that's not always the case. So some babies who have that, they're like, help me. I'm having a really hard time here. And they scream and scream and scream. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so both to me are communication. Both to me, this baby is trying to tell me something and I'm always listening what this baby is trying to tell me. I'm never saying, oh, they're not feeling anything. Mm -hmm. I'm never invalidating a parent's question of, you know, do you think that this is affecting things? My answer is usually a hundred percent. Let me see what I can do to help. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, hospital staff are not given tools to help, you know, their, their education is nothing else will help. So don't worry about it. Time will help, right? That's their education. And I'm not going to fault them for that. They paid a lot of money for this education. However, there's a lot of missing information that they could have that doesn't invalidate parents' concerns. And they're also most of the time running in a situation where they're short-staffed and they're just running around like a chicken with their head come off, trying to take care of all their their patients. And so they wouldn't have the time to kind of sit down and explore that further with parents. Absolutely. That's, that is an absolute possibility. Now, doctors, nurses, they are required to do continuing education, but what are they choosing to do their continuing education in? Mm -hmm. And if they have not chosen to learn further in this area, then they'll just keep what they learned in school. And they're also, due to liability issues, they're not allowed to say, yes, this will help because it's not part of the bureaucratic system within the hospital system. It's not, you know, they are only allowed to say certain things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that might really hurt them to say like, I, sorry, I can't tell you, you know, they can't even tell you that they can't tell you. Right. You yeah. know, so we can't depend on hospital staff and doctors and nurses to be the ones to tell us this. Because of the liability issues that they have. I don't know if it's the same in the States, but in Canada, they're not even allowed. You have to have a car seat to leave the hospital for the baby, but they're not allowed to show you how to make sure that the baby is in the car seat properly. 
Ooh, okay. So in the US, it's the opposite. They're required to check the car seat. But I will say I worked in the hospital for 10 years and there was a gag order on tongue ties and body work. So if yes. I told a family, you know, your your baby's not moving their tongue correctly and I suspect this is why, or I suspect your baby could benefit from some body work, I would get written up. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not allowed to say it. You're not right. even allowed to say that you can't say it. Yeah. Now, if a parent came to you, were you able to say, some parents have talked about this, it might be something you can look into? What What are some things that hospital staff can say? Well, I guess what I would say is, yeah, some parents find this helpful. And although I can't say either way, wink, wink, and then maybe, you know, slide over a piece of paper with some people I recommend and be like, just put this in your bag and look at it when you get home and... <laughs> Yeah. Because it is so hard as a provider to know why a family is struggling. And I'm just expected to watch them walk out the door and go home. And I know why they're struggling and how it can be fixed, but I'm not allowed to tell. Like to me, it did not work well. And that is one of the reasons why I ended up leaving the hospital setting because I felt that was grossly unfair to families and that we were doing a huge disservice to families. That is the absolute truth of it. And In my practice and in my school, right, where I'm teaching lactation consultants, so many of them worked in a hospital setting and left to do private practice as an IBCLC because a lot of times it was that gag order on the tongue ties. They weren't allowed to say anything. And they were like, but there's something there. What can I do? There's, I know there's something more that we can do. Why can't I say anything? Right. I got written up twice and I was like, both times I was like, worth it. (laughs) Yeah, but. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today because this is, you know, such an important conversation. We really need to get the word out to parents that they, they have the knowledge to know that this is at least an option that if you have it available in your area, because it's not available, for everybody. But if you have it available in your area, that it's something that you should look into. How can families connect with you? Where can they find you and learn more about you? So my school is at Beams CST. Beams is B-E-A-M-E-S CST. That's on Instagram. And then for my private practice, where I'm just, you know, trying to share what CST is all about for, for babies and parents, is my baby CST, just as it sounds, my baby CST, both on Instagram. Great. And I will link to those in the podcast notes. Thank Thank you you so so much, Megan. This was a lot of fun. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening.